Galatians, law, liberty, life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. And before I read the text, here's the title for this morning's study. It's a false love that is indefinite about gospel truth. It's a false love that is indefinite about gospel truth. This is a text, Galatians 2, 1 to 10, that has elements to it that don't make for easy sermonic presentation. It's, it's quite involved. Nothing in it sort of just makes you jump out and say, well, hallelujah, praise God, isn't that wonderful? It doesn't read like the 23rd Psalm or the Lord's Prayer or the Beatitudes. It's different. So I wanted to introduce why we're looking at this subject in this text. Whenever we come to a text like this, we need to be reminded of its relevance. This is a text that's going to describe the early processes in the early church of, of how we got to where we are right now. October, what is this, 24, 2021. How did we get here? How did we get, how did we get to profess the things we're professing about Jesus, the gospel? How did we, how did we get this content of the gospel? What was the process that, like, we didn't just pop into here magically. There's a, there's a whole process, dot by dot by dot, that led us to where we are right now. It isn't an accident. I think of my life. So if you went back to, if you went back to the early 1930s, you would have seen Paul, my grandpa, Paul and Jenny, Corbin, Corban, it would have been pronounced, in a tiny little village. I'm not telling you this for sentimental reasons. There's a, there's a purpose here. Tiny little village in Poland, just before, just before Nazi occupation, rumblings already. My, my uh, grandpa came over here worked for nine years in a, the back of another store. He had a shoe repair store, not his own store. In the back of another store, he fixed shoes, put soles on shoes. He came over here nine years earlier. My grandma, Baba, and Michael, my dad, came over nine years later when grandpa had saved up enough money to bring them. I have the bill of laden from when my grandma came over with Michael. I've got an actual copy of it. And it'll list Jenny, Horbin, and Michael with one suitcase, all their belongings, and get this, Jenny, Horbin had one suitcase and six dollars. Came here, grandpa with his shoe repair store but go back in time. Grandpa, when he came here, was involved in the Ukrainian church, on the executive of the Ukrainian church down in Toronto. But if you go back to that little village long before, 
and an evangelist came to this little village with about 37 people in the village, and an evangelist came through, and Paul and Jenny Horbin, my grandparents, got saved. I'm trying to picture what that meeting was like because I have a feeling we wouldn't have considered it impressive. Didn't have screens or any musical instruments, probably. I don't know where they met, some barn. And this guy came speaking Ukrainian or Polish. And, and here's my point. He presented a message to them. We call it the gospel. From that, Grandpa came here, started working in the Ukrainian church. Michael and Jenny come over later on. Dad goes to Bible school, pastors a church, ends up in Newmarket, Ontario. His son Donald comes later on. Who thought that I'd be here 40 years preaching the same thing my dad and my grandpa preached this gospel, which they heard, which they heard from some un, unnamed person who would probably never get to speak in a church like this, not very polished probably, this unknown, unnamed evangelist who came through Schmutzville in Poland and preached the gospel. Now, so a lot of things unfolded, right? A lot of things unfolded from this guy who came to this little village in Poland and preached the gospel. How do we know he told my grandparents the truth? I mean, if my grandparents had been in Spain, they'd probably be Roman Catholic. If they'd been in Russia, they'd probably be Orthodox. If they'd been in the Middle East somewhere, they'd probably be Muslim. Is that all there is to this? I mean, they happened to be in the right place at the right time, and so they adopted the message that they heard from this evangelist, and that's how all of this unfolded. How, how do we know who was right? A lot rides on it. A lot rides on it. Now, into this text, and keep all that little story in mind, okay? That doesn't count as my preaching time. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Paul is still talking about his credentials for ministry. Galatians 2, 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running in vain. Interesting. Three. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek, a Gentile. This matter arose because some false brothers, this is what we've been looking at, the false teachers in the Galatian churches. Some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. That's a strong word. Five. But we did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment. Well, that's pretty intolerant, Paul. Didn't budge. Not an inch. 
so that the so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you from this unnamed evangelist to Paul and Jenny Horbin to Michael and Daisy Horbin to Don and Rini Horbin to Cedarview Community Church this had to be preserved this message because it can get all messed up with the passing of time six now, from those recognized as important, he's talking about the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. What they once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. But these leaders, he said, they added nothing to me. They didn't change my message, didn't add to it. Seven, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised Gentiles, just as Peter for the circumcised, the Jews. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Same Holy Spirit, same message. Nine. When James, Cephas, John, those recognized as pillars, these were the, the leaders, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, notice given, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. We've just spent about three weeks uh, unpacking all of Paul's argument, substantiating his authority as an apostle and the supernatural nature of this message, this gospel message. He, he, was, he was bound to refute these false teachers who were troubling these new, mostly Gentile believers in the Galatian churches. So these false teachers came from Jerusalem, questioning Paul's authority as an apostle and his message. Two things. They were trying to bring these Galatian Christians back under the religious system of Old Covenant Judaism, with the outward signs of circumcision, dietary restriction, fellowship rules, and Paul will have none of it. So I, I didn't give in for a second. Well, you know Paul, Pastor Don, he's so stubborn. Is that all that's going on here, or is there something else? To substantiate his claims as a true apostle, Paul shows that he was just as divinely called and chosen as any other apostle. He describes what happened on the road to Damascus, his calling. And then he's careful to prove that he never even met with any of the other apostles, not initially. And, and he does this to point out that he wasn't chosen for his role by some committee who voted. God had knocked him off his mount on the road to Damascus and told him he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He got his message by revelation, he said. So far, so good. We've been looking at all those things. But, but there's a problem. Consider just for a minute how confusing all of this might appear to these new Christians in these Galatian churches. I mean, now that Paul has established himself as a genuine apostle, and now that these false 
teachers were coming from Jerusalem trying to show that Paul's gospel wasn't true, didn't include enough of the old covenant in it, was abandoning the foundation of Judaism, which, after all, they got from God. And now that these false teachers were coming to these Galatian believers from Jerusalem, claiming the authority of the church at Jerusalem, well, you can see this, these new Christians, they're not Bible school graduates, and they're, and they're, and they're probably wondering, okay, here's Paul. He, he says he got his message from God himself. It's a revelation. He's an apostle, but we've got these, these people coming from Jerusalem. They say they're representing the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, and they say Paul's wrong. So who are we supposed to believe? If it was true that Paul was a genuine apostle, and true that these were coming from Jerusalem also with the message from genuine apostles, and if the messages were contradictory, was the foundation of the church just divided? We probably can't even imagine. We probably can't even imagine how huge this issue was for these new Christians. This is the issue Paul knows he has to deal with. And he deals with it in our, in our text, the one I read at the beginning of this teaching. So, point number one. Sorry, point number one. In order to demonstrate the genuineness of his gospel message, Paul submits his message and his ministry to the apostles at Jerusalem. Now, you need to be careful. He doesn't receive his message from Jerusalem, but he proves it by the leaders in Jerusalem. He says, in fact, quite strikingly, that he was led by the Holy Spirit. He was led by divine revelation to confirm his teaching with the church in Jerusalem. It's in Galatians 2, 1 and 2. Galatians 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, after 14 years, that's how long he waited before he talked to anybody about his reception of this gospel message. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I want to talk about why he took those two guys in just a minute. Why did you go to Jerusalem, Paul? Look, I went up according to a revelation. According to, look at that, I got a text from Kirk Caulfield while I'm preaching to you. He says, he went up to Jerusalem according to a revelation. Presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. But privately, to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. It's a fascinating insight. I mean, Paul received his call and his message by divine revelation. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 12. But, but he still wants his message and his ministry to be endorsed by the church. In other words, just because Paul knew he had this divine calling from the Lord and the gospel message from the Holy Spirit, he still has no desire to be a freelancer unattached to the local church. 
once he had established the unique, independent reception of the truth, he said, I didn't talk to anybody for 14 years. Once he does that, he's happy to submit all of it to the leadership in the church at Jerusalem. Paul was always that way. I mean, even on his missionary journeys, Paul wanted to make sure he was uh, released, uh, endorsed, under the support and blessing of local churches. Let me just give you a couple of examples real quick. Acts 13, 1 to 3. Here's a congregation. Now in the church at Antioch, Paul's visiting this church as he ministers. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, interesting, eh? And, and Saul. And as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, laid hands on them, sent them off. It's one example. Here's another one. As they traveled throughout the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. And so the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. So my point there is simply that Paul recognized the protection, the strength of working with the church. In fact, in our text today, Paul said it was the Holy Spirit who led him to go up and have his ministry confirmed by the leaders in Jerusalem. Once Paul could demonstrate that his message was consistent with that of Peter and James and John, well, then he would leave these, these false teachers who were coming to Galatia, he would leave them with no leg to stand on. He, he would prove that his ministry of the past 14 years hadn't been in, he says, in vain. I went up according to a revelation, presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders, wanted to be sure that I wasn't running and had not been running in vain. Okay, point number two. Paul, Paul gets his message from the Holy Spirit. He says, I didn't receive it from anybody, I didn't talk to anybody for 14 years. Gets his message from the Holy Spirit. Then, it's confirmed under the leading of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who tells Paul, after 14 years, now go to Jerusalem, talk to the leaders, and have your ministry confirmed because you're going to need that as you travel and present the gospel. You need to be with the church. So it was the Holy Spirit that pressed Paul and here's the second point. The Holy Spirit will never encourage the compromising of gospel truth. Galatians 2.2, the Holy Spirit, by revelation. Paul, go to Jerusalem. Have your ministry confirmed by the leaders. Somehow this issue with the false teachers in Galatia it had to be resolved. Paul had to show that he wasn't off on some wacky binge, that his was the same gospel with the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. But it would be a mistake to read Paul's trip to Jerusalem as just pride or just stubbornness. Paul makes it clear 
He makes it clear, and this is an important point, that this, the Holy Spirit orchestrated this to preserve and protect the purity and power of the gospel to those who hadn't heard it yet. Look at what he says, for example, in Galatians 2, verse 5. We did not give up and submit to these people, these false teachers, for even a moment. Why, Paul? Are you just pig-headed? You just want your slice of authority and recognition? Is that what it is? No. We didn't give in for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. And the Holy Spirit protects the presentation of the gospel of some evangelist in some tiny village in Poland, preserves the truth of it so that Paul and Jenny Horbin can eventually end up in Canada and start a work for the Lord and present the same gospel that they heard from that evangelist in Poland and they receive the same message and they start here and they pass it on to people like their sons who go into the ministry and they present the same gospel and it's the Holy Spirit is working to preserve the gospel for people who haven't heard it yet. That's why Paul goes to Jerusalem. That's why he argues about the gospel. That's why he confirms it with the leadership in the church. He wants to make sure there's nothing vain. I wasn't running in vain. This isn't for nothing. Only when that primary goal is kept in view do you really get a picture of Paul's heart and Paul's motives. It wasn't just that Paul was scrappy. I want this, I want this gospel preserved because it's a missionary issue. The lost have to be reached. Here's the point. Not just any religion can reach the lost. Not just any message can reach the lost. That truth of the gospel has to be guarded. It still has to be guarded. It has to be protected. It has to be defended. If need be, argued about. Church shouldn't contend about everything. The tragedy is, of course, churches always, always, well, that's not fair, almost always split over non-issues, not big issues. Churches rarely split fighting about the Trinity or the resurrection of Jesus. They fight over how light or how dark the sanctuary is, how long you have to stand, how loud the music is, what kind of instruments should be allowed. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Satan has a seat. He sits right up there and he watches what happens and he laughs his head off. Little tiny things. But there are big things. When truth gets compromised. When the gospel message isn't preserved for the next generation, for the lost who haven't heard it yet, they have to get the right message. They have to get the right message or they're doomed. Relativism and tolerance are often equated with humility, but should never be so in the gospel, in the church. A lack of unity is not the only tragedy that can hit the church. Confusion 
is as dangerous as disunity. Consider this, that virtually all of the first apostles, virtually all of them, died for the truths they felt were too precious to turn from. People will die for something that they think is true, even if it's false. But people will never die for something they know to be a lie. I mean, they just, they just knew this was the truth of the gospel. What truths do you feel so certain, so absolute, so essential that you would give your life to cling to them? Point number three. Paul took Titus with him to lay the issue of his gospel message clearly on the line. Let me just explain this. It's in Galatians 2, 3 to 5. Galatians 2, 3 to 5. But not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ. Jesus, sorry, Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. There, there's something powerful happening here that's easily missed. It's, it's not just a trite detail that gets thrown in when Paul talks about Titus. Paul doesn't have to bring Titus to Jerusalem. He can go and confirm the revelation he had received easily with the leaders and leave Titus at home. He didn't have to bring Titus. But he brings Titus as a case study. Titus, a Gentile, is Paul's way of demonstrating that, that doctrine always affects people. Titus, Titus was a life set free in Christ. Titus was one redeemed by the marvelous power of the cross of Christ. And Titus was a Gentile. He was saved by faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. He never kept any of the old covenant laws because he wasn't a Jew. And Paul says, look at Titus. He's as saved as I am. And he makes the case. Titus is the proof. It's interesting, isn't it? You have a model here of the gospel. Paul is traveling with two men, Barnabas, chapter 2, verse 1, and Titus, chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 3. Barnabas is a Jew. Titus is a Gentile. What better way could Paul go to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and say, you see how the gospel works? Jew, Gentile, it's about faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about the old covenant. Paul takes Titus and Barnabas, and later on, Paul's going to write what we call the book of Ephesians, and he's going to say there's not Jew or Greek, slave or free, vaccinated, unvaccinated. He's going to say we're one in Christ. This is where Paul starts demonstrating it. He goes to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Titus, Barnabas. Look, look, at my, look at my two brothers in Christ here. As different in background as you can imagine. Has nothing to do with the old covenant. Has nothing to do with circumcision. Has nothing to do with the dietary laws. These are, these are both brothers in Christ. 
I would point out, though, that these false teachers were still on the prowl. Paul says 14 years later. There's always something persistent about false doctrine, false teaching. It never goes away. It will never go away in this church, the danger of it. It never goes away. The spirit of the age will always have a desire to sow confusion into the body of Christ when it comes to the centrality and importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to always be on guard against it. I said it earlier. You need to believe to the bottom of your shoes that confusion is just as harmful as division in the body of Christ. And yet, and yet we're, we're much more concerned about disunity than we are confusion. And we should be confused. All I'm saying is we should be concerned about both of them equally. Because unity that gets achieved by ignoring different ideas is devilish unity, even if it's under the roof of a sanctuary. Point number four, and I jumped ahead a bit in the notes just so you guys up in the sound room aren't panicking. Point number four. Here's a passage that's important for its testimony to a united front of apostolic authority. The text I want to look at is Galatians 2, 6 to 10. Galatians 2, 6 to 10. Now, from those recognized as important, he's talking about the leaders in the church at Jerusalem. What there once were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. But the leaders in the church, he says, they added nothing. They added nothing to me. So they didn't feel that Paul's doctrine of the gospel needed the teaching of the old covenant added. That's what he's saying. They didn't supplement the gospel with anything else. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Gentiles, Jews. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Same Holy Spirit working in us. That's what Paul is saying there. When James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, these are the leaders, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Specifically, Paul names Peter, James, and John, and he said they all supported my ministry. That's important because there are always those who portray James, for example, and Paul you read the book of James, faith without works is dead. You read Paul and the gospel and Romans. There are always people who portray them as being opposites. And Paul's very clear that James, the one who said faith without works is dead, James shook Paul's hand, the text says. So whenever somebody argues with you about James being a different message than Romans, 
Just remember that the guy that wrote James and the guy that wrote Romans shook hands and said, we are on the same page. That's an important truth. That's an important truth to remember. In these verses, Paul starts to wrap up his defense. The Judaizers do not represent the teaching of the Jerusalem apostles. Paul says this in two different ways, I hope you notice. First, he, he, de he describes the process negatively. In verse 6, Paul says that the, Jer the Jerusalem apostles contributed nothing to me. They didn't add to his message. They didn't supplement it at all. Secondly, positively he says that the Jerusalem apostles blessed and encouraged Paul's missionary efforts to the Gentiles. We read that in verses 7, 8, 9, 10. So there's different audiences, for sure. Still, there are all sorts of people engaged in all sorts of religious practices in all sorts of lands, worshiping all sorts of gods, with all sorts of sacred texts and books and visions and dreams. And Paul says, but, but they need the same message. They need the gospel. They all need exactly the same message. Titus, Gentile, Barnabas, Jew, everyone needs the same message, Paul says. Everyone needs the truth of the gospel. Don't give in on compromising the gospel, not for one minute, Paul says. What this text, it's a hard text for a sermon. But what it means is that the gospel is eternally true and unchanging for all times and all people. If nothing else, and you leave here with that nailed down in your mind, it's a worthwhile truth. The gospel is eternally true for all people at all times. And that, if you don't think that message is under attack in this pluralistic age, you're going to be called intolerant. You're going to be called judgmental. You're going to be called closed-minded. You're going to be called unloving. You're going to be called unaccepting of others. So is Paul. Remember earlier we studied where Paul said, if, if I wanted to be accepted by people, I wouldn't still be proclaiming the gospel of Christ. You make nothing but enemies there. The second thing, so the gospel is eternally true for all people at all times. Secondly, divine truth is powerful, but it is never self-defending. So that people who have received God's grace are obligated to make sure that the content of the gospel gets passed on undiluted and unpolluted that the message has to say the same. Truth decay is everywhere. Truth decay is everywhere. And it is, it is never a loving thing, never a loving thing not to care about that. 
Unity at the expense of truth is useless. I hope that uh, this church loves to worship God passionately and joyously. Uh, loves to reach around the world in all sorts of compassionate, humanitarian, good ways. But above both of those things, loves to make sure that the message we're exporting, the message we're exporting, is the same message that we received. And there's never any compromise in it. And, and never ever come to the place where you think that makes you unloving. The opposite is what makes a church unloving. If all we have to offer people is some kind of psychotherapy where they'll feel better about themselves, that's not loving. That's just deceptive. Everybody that agrees with me, let's see your hand. Good. Good stuff. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word. Thanks for the examples that we have there, real people. Paul, taking the gospel to people. And that unbroken chain of gospel truth that carries us right to where we sit in these chairs or in our homes right now. That the message doesn't change one bit. Help us to always contend for gospel truth. That when we talk about showing the love of Jesus to this waiting, watching world, we mean, we mean showing the saving love of Jesus to this watching world. In your name I pray and I thank you. Amen.